All right, everyone, welcome back. Solve for Why vlogcast number 17. As you can see, we are in our rightful place. Everything is well in the world. No flag. Nick is a fucking asshole. <laughs> really nice guy, but don't take, don't take my fucking flag, bro. Swear to God. Uh, all right, man. It's good to see you, man. It's been a little while. I was on the East Coast. You didn't come out there. You don't like Borgata. I hate the Borgata. Yeah. It's not that anything they did. I just, you know, I don't win there. People have certain territories, you know? Like, that's like Paul Volpe, Darren Elias territory. What's your, your territory is Florida. You're a Florida guy. I, I don't think I have a spot. I just know that I'm a net loser at the Borgata, and that's probably the only casino in the world that's, that's true. That's what I'm saying. Like, your biggest, your biggest stuff is in Florida. Like, you've done what very well. What about the Rio? Yeah, but like, you what can't. What about the Aria? You can't claim the Rio. Like, well, I'm just saying, like, what you're saying doesn't make much sense. <laughs> no, I think, I think. Mercier you know. spot's not Florida? Mercier is like, you Did know. Did you see the wall of fame that Conrad created in the cartoon? <laughs> <laughs> All right, so you don't like Florida, man. Fuck Florida. All right, fuck it. <laughs> what you want me to tell you? All right, so we're back. It's good to, it's good to see you. Uh, we're going on a road trip soon. We'll talk a little bit about that, but. I see you uh, splashing around in the online. I haven't. Uh, I, I never, hate online. I've man. never taken you for an online wizard. I'd rather go to the Brigada. <laughs> you like online tournaments? I don't like them. I like that they're fast and you can make money, but okay. I don't like them. So go ahead. What 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 what's different for you? I don't know, man. It's like uh, it's hard to stay fully engaged. I don't personally get that much out of like multi-tabling like i don't like being robotic in the way i play i like being thoughtful i like putting myself in tough spots finding my way out of them i like to know where my edge is and where i'm deriving profit from mm -hmm. and i like to look a motherfucker in the face yeah you know i want to know <laughs> when i hit that 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 spot, you know, that leverage point where it's like enough's enough. Pain threshold. Yeah. I, was, yeah, I used to be one of our OG words. Yeah. I mean, it's not a thing now that they have a kind of template as to what hands should call, what hands should fold. But, you know, the, the way poker has evolved is through fear metrics. So mm -hmm. a lot of the way we developed our early strategy was just kind of preying upon that. There was a, you started a 100K challenge. Loosely. I, I hadn't started it yet. Whenever I spoke about it last week, I just said that uh, Nick had kind of convinced me that I have to do it. Okay. Why? Well, he was trying to get me to I'm play. I'm going to try to talk you out of it. Okay. You should uh, because it's been two days and I'm already fucking miserable. <laughs> but he was trying to talk me into playing on uh, Bovada and like a few other sites. Yeah. Basically just saying like my win rate's way too high to not be putting putting in the, the volume there. It's like I've gotten to a point where like I don't want to grind thousands of hours of poker a year it's like wow. well isn't that why you grind to begin with is to get out of the grind is to be able to like you know spread yourself around mm -hmm. other endeavors like i'm still very passionate about poker it's just yeah. like it's but like grinding 2500 hours is like not nothing. you ever put in 2500 no. hours i hope to not yeah i'd be very willing to put in a thousand hours a year again i'd be very willing to even put in 1500 hours a year again but i would need it to be at stakes where uh, I felt like it was moving me towards something. So like if I were going to put in mass volume at say like 510 or 1020 again, uh, I would have to have a pretty bright light at the end of the tunnel. So like him basically just saying like, yo, jump on Berga or Bovada, like I'm crushing it. And I believe that he is. Mm -hmm. It's like, come do this thing that you already hate for excessive volume, which you've never done. Mm -hmm. you know extract the win rate that you you likely should deserve it's like i'm just not the, i'm not built that way i wish i were uh i would probably have a hell of a lot more money yeah uh i may have had fewer opportunities but like you know case okay, sarah it's just for me it's like the purity of poker is the fact that it's a human game it's an interaction amongst a group that have agreed under the constructs of this battleground did you to, see the uh, the linus accuse, accusation of him cheating no okay so the accusation was Linus Love cheating as it pertains to having real-time solves like in-game okay. uh, while playing. Okay. So 
obviously, people give Linus the benefit of the doubt. He's extremely good. We've seen him also live. He's extremely good. Um, but that brings in the concept of like, okay, well, if Linus isn't cheating, but this is available, does this exist, especially in anonymous pools or things like this, like Bovada, where it's like having a real-time solve is probably pretty sick. Mm -hmm. um, does that worry you at all? Like people having ability to have like real-time solves or things like this when you're grinding these stakes? Because like, so I would say 5, 10, 10, 20 is not stakes that people would just not care about the money in. Like, sure, no, 100%. Um, I, I'd be interested into knowing more. I, I understand that that technology is 100% available. I'm just a little bit more curious as to like what that is. Uh, I assume that it's the ability to access a database in real time mm -hmm. where you can throw in a texture and positional alignments and basically say, what should my frequencies be? Mm -hmm. And if that's the case, that's 100% available. Like you can go to sites like Range Converter where they've already done massive databases of preflop solves and some multi-way Munker solves, uh, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and they definitely have a real-time feature to it where there's just a browser database where you can literally enter in this information and it'll spit it back to you. So yeah, we should definitely be concerned about the state of online poker. Whether or not Linus is doing that, don't know. Right, right. It's not, the discussion is, it started with Linus just because that's where the discussion began. Yeah. But now the discussion is just like, okay, even if we give Linus the benefit of the doubt, mm -hmm. That doesn't mean it's obsolete. Right. You know? And and to be fair, like, I don't think it's I don't think it's enough to say like we know he's very good. We've seen him play live and he's very good. Um, because what we know for sure is that he's very studied. Yeah. Uh and in the live arenas through which we've seen him, that's kind of enough. Like those those arenas are so volatile. Yeah. In the sense that like there isn't a lot of edge to be had. So we're just going to see a rotate. Like, if he had never had a cash in a high roller, would we suddenly say he's bad? No, absolutely no not. No chance, right? Right. So the fact that he was on the right side or the variants picked him, uh, I don't necessarily think that's an affirmation of uh, whatever talent he may have or doesn't have. And I'm not, I'm not throwing shots at any degree. Obviously, he's very likely to be incredibly talented. My whole point is, if it were found out that he's just been running real-time solves for, say, months or years... Uh, I don't think that that would be that stunning. And I don't think that that would deteriorate his ability to transfer live because at the end of the day, whether he's running it real time or not, he's still effectively studying the, the spot. Yeah, It just seems incredibly difficult to police. And it's also difficult to anticipate a lot of this stuff. So, you know, the terms of service and things like that are constantly being updated. Yeah, uh, You know, we've seen an evolution effectively of immoral behavior online. And I think that like the closer together the strategies begin to run between player A and player Z, where edges are razor thin and the way that you cut your teeth is based on figuring out ways that you can eke out a tenth of a blind better than your opponent. The more that that happens, the more apocalyptic the, the environment's going to actually become. And you're just going to see uh, kind of a battle of who has the best software and who can implement it fastest. I feel like this has happened for a long time, though. It's like it has. We've remember, we've turned a blind eye to it. I remember, sure. you know, the first time I heard about like online cheating was yep. the Brian Townsend with um, Hastings versus Easelder. Yeah, where Townsend shared all of his hand histories with Hastings, and Hastings now goes on to beat uh, Easelder for a million. I'm assuming Townsend had. I think a piece. it was a lot more. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Maybe it was more. I think it was like five million. Maybe it was a lot more. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think it was like five million. Um, and I'm assuming Townsend got compensated, right? Like in some way, it wasn't just like a favor, you know. So you know, it's like even if it were, what's what's the difference? Right. Uh, you know, Townsend gets a slap on the wrist, lost his red pro status, something like that, for like a little while. Mm -hmm. Big deal, you know. Um, then of course the Sorrel Mizzy stuff of multi accounting, Justin Bonham of multi accounting. You know, that was like, you know, people. I think Sorrell was like more of buying accounts. Oh, okay, okay. Excuse where me. Justin was multi accounts. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, again, so this stuff just kind of happens, but it's the wild, wild west. Right. There's so no a lot regulation. of people are like, well, you know, now what you should do is just like assume that you're, you could be playing against anyone. But like, is that just fair? Is that enough? No, no, no. Not, not in today's day and age where now this is happening at precision with bots. Mm. You know what I mean? Like, it's really problematic, uh, especially like a lot of stuff we see on ACR. It's like, it's crazy to me. I understand that there's a desperate desire. And honestly, this does speak to the fact that there is a market. 
that people are will, willfully showing up week in and week out, even though they're being forewarned that the site is riddled with bots that have a higher ROI than they do. To just like turn a blind eye and be ignorant to that fact and say like, oh, well, I can overcompensate uh, that being the case. We talked about this um, regarding uh, a high rake structure. Somebody was telling me that they were playing in a, in a game. Underground games? Uh, I think it was on our Slack channel. Okay. Somebody was saying that they were playing a 1-3 game where the max rake was like $9. Mm. So it was like 10% up to 9 bucks or something to that effect. And it was working out where like the rake in the game was taking like three or 400 or maybe even more. It might've been like closer to two full buy-ins off the table uh, every hour. And what I proposed in return was if you had a player to your left in a game who is winning something in the neighborhood of 150 to 200 big blinds an hour, do you think you could ever win in that game? Even if, uh, even if you were the second best player behind him? Seems really hard right the answer is obviously no and and that's a little bit of an unfair comparison because the rake is effectively just uh reducing the amount of liquidity in the pool Mm -hmm. it's not actually um physically reducing like like basically that that seat to your left person yeah Yeah, yeah, yeah. that seat to your left isn't just collecting all the chips and sending people home and all that other stuff right but i i think in in loose terms the analogy is is worth examining because like that is what a bot is now, right? Now you do have a player to your yeah. left who may have like five or 10 times your win rate. Yeah. And it's insurmountable. It's like, not only can you not overcome it as maybe the second best player, but the field as a whole certainly can't overcome it. Right, and now having multiple is a big deal. Right, all of that money is now getting funneled to players that just simply can't lose. Yeah, the rumor was, at least I remember reading this last year, where OTB, uh, OTB Red Baron, has such a high win rate at six max that every player on the table was losing when right. he was at the table mm-hmm. because he was just so dominant. Well, it's probably a combination of him and the rake. Fair, right? Fair, the, fair. So, so the rake is already like forcing pretty much everybody to be like a, a one and a half to three big blind loser mm-hmm. if they're break even strategy wise. Right. Now OTB is maybe taking like another, I don't know, yeah. he's what, what, whatever he's winning. Right, yeah. right, right. Infinite. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, he was the best player for. Until now, I presume. I don't know. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, so that brings me. That kind of. That's loops, why live's so beautiful. That's what I'm saying. Like uh, that loops me back. So now we go back to live, right? Right. You know, we're seeing all the big tournaments moving to live. All of the major cash games mostly moving to live. Obviously, we can talk about that a little bit more as well. But is it just like a natural transition where it's easier to protect the game's integrity live? Easier to even though the access to the game is not as available as online, like, but do the other factors just outweigh I so think, strongly that live is just where poker belongs? Well, I, yeah, I think those barriers are what makes live so lucrative. So the fact that you do have to drive to the casino, the fact that it's a time investment, the fact that um, you know, you're going to have to jump through some hurdles like waiting on lists or potentially like having to round up a game yourself if you want to play bigger or whatever the case may be. I think all of those hurdles turn into filters where it's like it just disincentivizes the people who are really fucking good at micro edges. Mm. Um, because in a lot of instances, micro edges are going to be bordering on moral versus immoral, right? Mm. They're going to be bordering versus like legal versus cheating. Uh, and a lot of times the best are just going to find the gray area where it's like, there's no policy for this. Mm-hmm. Now, at some point this may come to, to a close too, because we might just like reach the singularity and have like the ability to access AI at any given time, assuming that's not the case or not the case in any, any near future, um, then live thrives. And a lot of it is because all of the things that are discovered through mass data quantification are lost in the wash whenever volume is removed. So it's like understanding what your win rate is, understanding how the rake is going to affect you, understanding um, you know, how much the deviations from your strategies are gonna result in plus or minus on your bottom line, recognizing like how EV and equity intertwine with strategic construction. All of those things dilute at a rapid rate whenever the only true feedback loop is now uh, anecdotal. Yeah. Right? So all you're going off of is 
this one spot, this one time versus this one opponent and all these specifics because all you can do is extrapolate. There's absolutely no way in hell. I mean, I've been playing for 16 years, right? So th this is a, a great metric to understand. I've been playing for 16 years and the game has changed so much from year one to year now, right? So any data I would uh, analyze from 2003 would effectively be worthless to me analyzing in 2019. Right. Not only because I am so much more knowledgeable, but also the game has just changed so much that we won't find environments that will mimic that, right? Yeah. But even if I was able to collect every single hand I played from 2003 till now, we might maybe reach a million hands. Maybe. Right. And that's like the floor of what we, we would consider like statistical relevance when analyzing uh, mass data, right? Right. There was a, there was a long joke where Lex Valthaus played probably in a week what Doyle Brunson played in a lifetime. his life. Yeah. You know, which is insane to think yeah. about. And there's also like a, a massive separate discussion there too, where it's like if you're 26 tabling and you have a hand in front of you over and over and over again, like the strategies needed to employ there in order to maintain EV uh, at a winning rate are vastly different than if you're one tabling right. and you're able to absorb all of the information around you. Right. So a lot of times what we'll see is a very simplified strategy, a lot of pure strategies, a lot of bounded strategies where um, you know we are heavily shifted towards value. Basically, the, the maturation of the strategic paradigm in poker started with the value lens and is just now arriving at the point where we understand how important bluffing is. And I would wager that the people who used to be capable of 26 tabling couldn't do so profitably now, or at least there's very few of them. Yeah. That's why we see the Nananokus saying, like, I don't have a passion for the game anymore. And, like, it's you, you just can't put in that many decision points in a balanced manner. It'll fry your brain. Shout out to Nananoku, man. OG of the game. China zone. <laughs> so then what are you going to do? Are you going to do this 100K challenge then? Yeah, I'm just going to be miserable. But uh, I want to be... Why are you doing it? You doing it for the money? No, I mean, 100K would be nice. Um, I'm more so doing it just because... I, I guess I'm like in this headspace where I really want to push boundaries and, and like challenge myself in a big way. But I want to do so in a, a mindful way of time. So it's like if I were to make the same challenge live, I would either have to play much, much bigger, which would be fine, but it's hard to drum up the action. Or I would have to play many more hours. Yeah, when you get, when, you know, as you get more money, uh, one of the things you do is try to buy more time. So it's like, it's like why you take, uh, you know, airplane instead of driving or like why... You see people take a helicopter from city to city or like whatever. You just yeah. buy more time or like why you pay someone to do certain things for you instead sure. of you doing them yourself. So like I could see why you're trying to value your time and like just do it online versus like going to play, you know, 1020 of Bellagio or, or something like well, that. Well, it's also that like I hate online so much. I should push myself a little bit to see if the reason why I hate this environment so much is because of a flaw from my side. Uh, and the biggest thing is that like, you know, I get immediate feedback and I can study a little bit more differently than I'm accustomed to studying. That's, that's and that's, good. that's good. That's good. That's accustomed to studying. I guess more abstractly where it's like, I'm just plucking out trends that I see in the environment, mm. kind of seeing how valid, how, how much validation there is to what they're doing, uh, how reliable the frequencies are and things like that. And then maybe extrapolate, extrapolating that out a little more theoretically through like testing phases and implementation and stuff like that. But in this instance, it's like, you know, I just have to do the legwork of reviewing my sessions once a week and like going through a hundred hand histories and seeing like, you know, how the players in the pool are actually uh, adjusting to me, how their, their, I guess, trends tend to fall in line. Um, and then lastly, it's like, it's a lot of shorthanded play. Right. So the game I'm playing is 200 big blinds, uh, deep and then it's six max exclusive which means that i'll be starting a lot of heads up games i'll be playing a lot of three-handed stuff like that so it's like you know i hate online largely because of the small stack sizes and uh the difficulty maneuvering whenever you're a loose player but i think the 200 big blind cap changes that a lot you've played nosebleeds right yeah. and now would playing 1020 at bellagio 2040 at bellagio 
would that hurt your ego in such a way where like you're you sitting there presently is like uncomfortable for you because like you're known to play super high rollable cash game no i don't think so um because in the grand scheme of things like the vast majority of that stuff is is out of my control like mm -hmm. even in five years in the big game i put in minimal volume and not because i i didn't want to play choice. yeah yeah, yeah I mean, it was not just my like, choice yeah right, right it was just one of those things where it's like it's a byproduct of being like the six man uh off the bench where it's like yeah you'll get a seat whenever the game's not that great we need you to fill it so like playing 10 20 40 every day it's like what other options would you have you know what I mean? It's like, I, I think that's very reasonable. I uh, played most of my career with most of those guys. That's, well, not, that's not a small game, though. It's a big game. It's a big, yeah, for sure. Uh, so much has changed, man. It's like in 2011 and 12 when I was taking my shots there, like I had a quarter million and felt overruled for the game because like I just never had that much money and I definitely had never had like uh, 10,000 big blinds. Mm-hmm to play a game before. Right, right. So I just felt like massively overrolled. But the reality is like, I wasn't even close to overrolled. No, no, for sure. You need so much more. Like, yeah, especially uncapped game and it shifts to 10, 20, 40 a lot. And it's like, you know, in reality, like half a million is probably a much more comfortable spot to be in. Yeah. Also like the games change where like the less your overall win rate is, the more money you're going to need because right. you're going to swing more. So like potentially at the time you were probably equal risk to like half a million because like you probably were just like significantly better than a certain players. Like, yeah, that's true. You know, so like, you know, you know, who knows? Like, yeah, if, I feel that way online right now. It's like, there are a few players that oh, I think shit. are just good. Well, just that win rates run close. Oh, I thought you meant like you felt significantly better than. No, no, players. no. I mean, there are a couple players that, uh, I can't fathom how they're still in action, but at the same time, it's like, I do see them do a few things really well. Mm -hmm. Like when they're buried and get, a lot of it back they'll just quit which seems emotionally and mentally really uh responsible yeah um and then the other side of it is just that like their strategies will change when they're up heaps mm. so it's like i'll see a couple of the guys like take huge gambles to get on a seven or eight or nine k stack and then suddenly just shut it down and wow. it's like now the environment's reacting to them because it just looks like they're punting um but you know outside of that i would say that the playing field is like they're good regs yeah and i don't know what their win rate is i don't know like what to uh equate it to i'm sure for a lot of them if i could just like play them live and look them in the face i would feel like i would just gain 10 percent win rate immediately but you know whatever it's it's their territory so it's super swingy like it just shouldn't be as swingy as it is but it just feels so so swingy it's aggressive. i just think it's like the nature of the beast right it's like we're playing 200 big blinds uh cap to start so already sizes are much larger both opens and three bets and yeah. four bets yeah and we're also just playing shorthanded a lot so we're playing like three-handed four-handed whatever Volatile. yeah like i lost 2k the second hand dealt to me heads up against uh butcher and it's like he's action it's like i just get ace queen in pre and that seems like a lot yeah it is but it also just seemed like how am I doing anything else with ace queen whenever uh, he threes and I four? Mm. It's like, how does the money not get in? Yeah, yeah I And understand. so, like, yeah, he had ace king. And it's like, now I'm buried 200 big lines right off the, start, right off the jump. So, so good. No, go ahead. I'll let you finish that. Well, I was just going to say, I, I think, like, that volatility, um, particularly, like, when you're coming from a live realm where things tend to be a little bit more steady, both good and bad, right? Like, when you're winning, that trajectory just, like, gradually climbs. And it doesn't feel like you're going to fall off. And that's probably true in a lot of single sessions because you're not putting enough volume necessarily correct, correct. for things to go poorly. And people are pushing against you. They're trying to, they're trying to correct the fact that like you're on the positive side of variance through blunt force trauma. Mm -hmm. uh, but in an online realm where you're getting in like two or three X the hands per hour, you can actually see a lot more of the spikes and dips. And now that makes the fluctuations a lot more painful because you feel like the environment is still over adjusting to you and, and trying to push back and things like that. But sometimes that's just variance correcting itself. Yeah. yeah. Other times that actually is true, but now you're on the short stick of variance and like there's very little you can do. So I guess like the, the environment as a whole is just so much more volatile in nature that, you know, like I said, over the last three, four months, I probably have like 50 or 60 hours. I honestly don't know 
I, I don't even think I could begin to estimate like what proper win rates are. Let's talk about, so we run an academy and we get a lot of, you know, clients come in, pros, aspiring pros. And, you know, some of these guys, they have potential, right? But to you specifically, who you've coached players, you've coached me, what are the traits that are mandatory to become one that can potentially break through? To me, it's like the number one trait necessary in order to climb the ranks and beat high stakes cash, particularly deep stacked no limit, is this willingness to uh, never relinquish. And the idea that like, whether it's a pot, a session, a downswing, whatever the case may be, like you're just gonna be really unrelenting and uh, stick, to, stick to the methodology that got you here, right? So somebody who has that like deep burning desire to just fight and push and, and you know, run into hurdle after hurdle after hurdle and still find their way to uh, get through, I think that's a, a, an incredibly important trait, but it's not good enough on its own. Yeah. I think that if you're just a, a pig-headed fighter who's stubborn and won't listen to any sort of objective feedback, then you are just doomed. You're destined to fail. It's going to be painful, and it's going to take failing multiple times before you either fix yourself or just get out of the environment as a whole. So somebody who is very quick to learn but uh, very slow to uh, back down, I think is like the ultimate characteristic for somebody who has a chance to traverse high stakes. From a technical side of things, it's just someone who can kind of like speak the language. So I, I think I could properly assess somebody's ceiling simply by the questions they ask, mm -hmm. right? The way they phrase them, how thoughtful they are whenever they bring them up, how micro they are versus how macro, how technical they are versus how, uh, you know, lacking of detail they are. Simply running through a hand history with somebody and the, the, the way that they present it and the way that they uh, yeah. follow up with their questions is a telltale sign as far as like a lot of intangible things that have nothing to do with poker. Their confidence, mm -hmm. their ability to handle variance, their comprehension of volatility and uh, you know how impactful it is in this game. The second you recognize arrogance in that presentation or the, that questioning mechanism is the second that you realize you have the former who is just too pig-headed to hear any sort of objective response versus the latter who's like wide open to the idea that the game that they fell in love with that started playing didn't have data analysis but now mm. all of a sudden we have all these tools and calculators available to us and we need to be dynamic enough to shift for me as like an instructor coach mentor whatever like the people that come to me sometimes sometimes it's a little easier to fool me today than it was before because like they do speak the language now mm. like they speak the jargon they understand certain concepts of like oh you know our ev went up so we should overbet so it's like yeah that's true but you know when placing these players in in the live arena there's something and i think it's more of what you said in like that first portion where it's like some people just don't have that it factor it's instincts and, it, yeah. 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 It, it's just the instincts to recognize like that the rule book is merely a guideline and their gut in this close decision is more powerful than whatever the, the template would say. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's interesting. Like I, I feel like there's a lot. So I, I, I guess I can speak from my experience. Like I think that the desire to win the mental warfare even if like it means you're going to sometimes like take some lumps is probably undervalued in today's climate. Like I was kind of, you know, doing this interview and, and I was asked like, you know, what was like one moment? And it was like, I remember sitting in a, in a game with like Jake Schindler cheese and uh, DJ AF. And I didn't know if I was winning. Yeah. But I knew that like, this is where I can see if I can eventually win. Right. Right. And like, not because like I was winning in this exact moment or like that I was better than them or whatever. I just wanted to see if I could understand 
like what they're doing and if my strategy is so transparent to them or not. Right, right. And then if I'm a small dog, that's fine because like when I'm no longer playing in this killer lineup, like I'm a huge favorite, you know? Yeah. And then I could just come back and like retest if I could beat them eventually. Yeah. But I don't think people do that today at all. No, no, no. It's, it's quite the opposite, rack. right? And, and, yeah. And it's also, it's, it's built out of this. I think this has been a little bit oversold, right? So we're dealing in a financial market and it should be treated as such. Of course, you should be analyzing where you're making money. You should be analyzing where other people are losing money. You should be analyzing the data as best you can. Absolutely. But just recognize that at, at our best, we are nothing more than a reasonable estimate. Yeah. So for you to even look around that environment and say like, oh, I think I'm winning one big blind an hour, or I think I'm losing two big blinds an hour, whatever, whatever number you arrive at, it's going to be off. And it might be off by a factor of five, who knows, right? More importantly, it's not taking into consideration of the fact that like nobody at that table is infallible. Mm. So like, yeah, on their best day, collectively, you're, you might be losing, right? Your strategy might be weaker than all three of theirs, or maybe it's not, who knows? But what about right now? What about in this exact four-handed dynamic where you have position over A and you're out of position versus B, but one or the the other of them is mentally checked out on their phone every hand, one or the other of them is stuck, whatever. There's a A number of things that are so variable in nature that we can never begin to guess this. Uh, I used to have this big fight with Dan and Andy when we were roommates. And I understand where they were coming from. I was I was definitely stubborn in the way I communicated my point. But I think my point is still very valid. We would argue about keeping an hourly for like live uh, cash games. Mm-hmm. And I, I would argue that I thought hourly was a really poor metric. And that I thought just like keeping an average session win-loss total was kind of good enough. And I wasn't implying that it was by any means a bulletproof system. Yeah, yeah. But basically what I was saying is that like when you start to examine hourly, you are, you're overlooking a lot of the data yeah, that impacts that hourly, right? right? So the point that I was trying to make is that any one to 10 sessions a year could effectively make or break your bottom line. Absolutely. Right? You getting to play five hours with a drunk person at, at the larger stake that you don't regularly play could really massively tack on or take away from your win total. Yeah. But when you look at it broken down in an hourly, the, since you're putting in such low volume, it just doesn't matter. Right, right. So the amount of hours that you could conceivably play were so low that we could never really reach statistical relevance anyway. And their whole counterpoint was like, more information is never, never bad. And it's like, that's true when you're operating from a statistically relevant pool. Or, or a pool of data, right? But it becomes very misleading whenever you start to dig into the microanalysis of an already irrelevant pool of data. So the fact of the matter is, looking at hourly or session win rate or even year-to-year win rate is pretty insignificant. We just can't draw very many conclusions. So we're arguing over this minutia that means nothing because the true discussion should be, is it worth even looking at the numbers at all? Do you think that implementation can be trained? I sure as fuck hope so, man. Uh, I, I think I, I think I think you could. You know, I think yes, I feel, but not the way that people think. I don't know how this this is how I feel. I feel as if five years ago, potentially like I knew more than I could implement. And now I feel like it's potentially the other way around. Like I implement a lot more than probably what I what I know. Like I just pull a trigger. Well, maybe my, more so what you can communicate. Yeah, I think you can know things that you can't necessarily communicate. Right, exactly. But I think it was more of like shutting down my like overthought process in spots Mm -hmm. and like opening up the fact that like I believe I'm good at this game to the point where I am better than this player. Right. And whether that's true or not, like I'm going to believe it right now and this trigger is going to be pulled. And if I look like an idiot, then like, I only have to answer to myself. Yeah. It's recognizing the points of resistance that are hindering you from taking a strategy on paper and implementing it in practice. And that point of resistance may be not putting enough study. Mm-hmm. It may be fear of risk. It may be um, fear of being wrong. Like mm-hmm. a lot of people 
view this game through the binary lens of right and wrong. Yeah, yeah. And I think that that's like a really toxic way to speak about uh, a math-derived game mm-hmm. when there aren't mathematical solutions, right? So it's like we have so few actually uh, viable solutions at our fingertips. And I'm saying that with like knowing that there's probably a billion or a few billion GTO solves in databases out there. There's still a relative margin of error, um, both in the assumptive process that led to the solve, as well as the assumptions that take place when reading the solve. So like what I mean by that is a lot of times we'll have to, uh, we take a lot of liberties, right? So we'll just ignore the fact that somebody else entered the pot, but then folded yeah, yeah, yeah. in order to make the solve fit. Even though it changes everything. Right? So like under the gun limps, you open middle position, big blind calls, under the gun folds. Now we'll just examine middle position versus under the gun scenario as if like nothing ever changed. But you know, the dynamic has changed a lot. He called knowing the under the gun guy limped, et cetera, et cetera. This is going to change the assumptive process. The whole point I'm getting at is there's a relative margin of error there, right? So um, to, to view the game through correct or incorrect, right or wrong, good or bad, these, these very hard qualifiers, I think is demonstrative in creating more resistance. Um, I think people who are very risk averse tend to fall into that category as well, right? Where it's like, uh, to the far extreme, it's when people put money in behind. They simply don't even understand the pot odds. Like they're resistant to understanding the pot odds model. Right, right, right. Right? Because like they'll say, and we have students like this, Mm -hmm. like especially privately, we'll have people be like, um, you know, I don't feel comfortable calling with middle pair there whenever he bets the flop because I'm behind. It's like, but you're getting five to one. Right, but I'm behind. It's like, no, see, we're not speaking the same language anymore. I'm speaking a language where you're making money by calling because you're getting a better price than what your actual, actual equity is. You're speaking a language of binary right versus wrong. Right. Like this is this is the child like lens where the world is black and white. Hey, not, yo, not operating shit. a lot of gray. God damn, calling people children. One no, child, one not, child policy. It, it, Jesus, <laughs> it's it's not that I'm saying that they have a childlike mind, but what I am saying is that whenever we don't have answers, we'll often revert back to what is our default, and in a lot of instances, that will be this black and white world, right? Uh, not to dive off on a tangent, but like look at the political landscape. The vast majority of people are influenced by how they were raised as children. Mm. And they're just very binary in their beliefs, right? Mm. They fall on one side or the other. Very very few from the populace are going to toe the line in the middle and say like there's a big gray area. But, you know, there's a simple minority of people who think that way who have kind of outgrown this stuff. So ultimately, it's figuring out where the resistance points are that prevent implementation from taking place with any level of calibration and then training out of that. But that's a mental exercise. That has nothing to do with poker. That's what I think. Yeah, I think I think it has to do with with just outside of poker. It's like you shouldn't even look at poker for that right. situation. Right. Um, all right. So we have an Elite Academy. December? Yeah. Yeah. And so usually how the Elite Academy works is you've come to the Academy and you've qualified to come to the Elite Academy. Yep. What would you say to players, you know, they don't want to wait for an academy. They think they're good enough to come to the Elite Academy. They want to learn from you. What prerequisites would they need to just skip the academy and go straight to the Elite Academy? Uh, If possible. I think it would be like on an individual basis. Mm -hmm. There's probably been like two or three students over the three years. Yeah that we've kind of given that pass to. And it really just has to be like a one-on-one vetting process where I just have questions that would basically cover the material that's covered in the academy where it's like, you know, if you can answer these sufficiently, then yeah, you'll fit right in. Yeah. But if you're struggling to like give me post-flop strategies on certain board textures or find advantage versus disadvantage or, um, and the strategies that fit. Yeah, or, or find like proper proper sizing metrics for in position versus out of position, single raise pots, three bet pots, whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're lacking all of that fundamental knowledge, then it, it's just then showers. It's going to be too much. My number one policy is that I'll like never let anybody fire on the academies because I just don't think any level of training uh, could ever be that much of an end all be all. Yeah. Like you're just almost always better served if you're talking about like 
half of your bankroll or something to something egregious like that. Mm -hmm. You're almost a hundred percent better served to just play. Yeah. Cause the whole thing is, is that even if we gave you some out of the box strategy where it was like, yeah. look, here's your in-game solver, just follow it. It wouldn't work. It wouldn't work because the money would just mean too much. Yeah. yeah and the solver sure. would, the solver or our strategy or anything in between would just advocate for a lot of volatility. Mm -hmm. So it's like, I would never want to put somebody in a position where they felt like they were overly invested and now didn't have the comfort level to go implement. The second thing is that like, I don't ever want to put someone in the position where it's so much that they can't even ask intelligent questions. Yeah. Yeah. It detracts from the experience for everybody else. And then it also like just lets them leave with a sour taste. I remember the first time I check raised Kings six, three deuce. I think I had like 25 K I was playing like 1500 cap. And I check raised and I was scared, you know, <laughs> and I was like, but there was a little bit of me that was like, all right. Well, well that's kind of like what the, yeah. the general public doesn't understand is that like the digger, the, the deeper you dig into uh, strategy and performance, uh, whether you want to qualify it as game theory optimal or just the study of game theory as a whole, or even just like at a shallow level thinking strategically, mm. uh, what ultimately is uncovered is that this game is highly volatile. Yeah. And it's really just a very intelligent, strategic version of chicken. Yeah, absolutely. I, I want to expand on that before we move on. Like, I was having this conversation with, uh, with Oscar, which is like a lot of you guys are going to know uh, soon when the, when the movie comes out. And I, he was having this conversation with me as it pertains to um, effectively strategies that are pretty unrelenting and like leaking. So he's like, well, with you, if a certain board comes out and you're up against a player that's a nit, you're just going to, like, go. Like, you're just going to go off. And I'm like, okay. Like, he's like, yeah, that, like, you just don't care. You're just going to keep betting. And then I'm like, okay, like, but why do you think that's – he called that, like, GTO, right? Mm -hmm. He's like, oh, that's GTO. Like, GTO is going to just keep betting. And I'm like, I'm like, no, like, that's not GTO at all. I was like, first of all, if – my opponent is a nit and he doesn't have coverage on X board, then yeah, I'm going to go off because he's just not going to have hands to call. Yeah. If I'm up against an opponent that simply has the coverage on this board, I can't just go off and chalk it up to GTO. Like that doesn't, that's not GTO at all. Like it's actually an exploitative framework where I recognize that a certain player has no coverage so I get to over bluff a certain situation. Mm -hmm. But I think there is a language barrier or like a knowledge barrier as it pertains to players that view GTO as just like when this board comes, you just keep betting, you know? Well, I think the problem is uh, how shallow the fundamental understanding is. Even to the degree of like people who consider themselves to be not necessarily experts, maybe like low key experts where they would never publicly say that. But like yeah. when they're sitting at home jerking off at night, they're just like, yo, I'm a GTO goat. <laughs> I'm a GTO. <laughs> that's, that's what they say. I'm a GTO. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's just like, I'm a legend yeah. in the GTO game. But basically what I'm saying is like, you know, I've seen the forums, man. Mm. I see the way people talk. Like they put in a couple hundred hours grinding out solves and suddenly they think the only difference between them and Jason Kuhn is the ability to play in these games, like the, the money factor. And it's like, that might be true of like one in a thousand. Yeah. The amount of people who actually understand this game deeply, it's very, very, very few. It might be less than one in a thousand, to right. be honest it's, with it's, it's, it's very few, and they're playing big stakes, mm -hmm. right? It's like, <laughs> go search on YouTube, uh, like GTO training videos, right? Yeah. You'll see thousands of them pop up. Mm -hmm. How many of those guys are crushing 2.5? How yeah. many of those guys are making 100K a year playing 2.5? Yeah, that's a good question. Right? None. Why? 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 Mm -hmm. Why? If you are so damn good with the theory, then why isn't it translating? To that's what I'm saying. Line? That's what I'm saying. There's like there's a connection that's being missed. Like people talk the language, and but like they don't because the language is easy. Yeah. The true language of uh, of game theory is math. It's all math based. Mm. But if you understand a few terms, which they become highly popularized in in the community equilibrium mm. balance right balance yeah. is one of the the most laughable ones mm -hmm. 80 percent of the people who who are quote unquote studying or think that they're studying or having intelligent conversations about this think that balance means 50 50 yeah i like riling you up this is good go ahead i mean talk, talk it, your shit just, man 
this stuff gets frustrating <laughs> to me because it's like we get labeled as the anti anti GTO camp, and that's mm. not true at all. I'm anti the the style. Yeah. I'm anti the stylistic approach of GTO because it's bullshit. It's like to take a true concept like game theory, right? A pure concept. It's it's a science. It's it's uh, a study no different than quantitative phys physics or anything else along the mathematical spectrum, right? Yeah. And apply it to a game like this and then suddenly say like, oh, you either play GTO or you don't. Right. It's like, what are you talking about? Yeah. If I study poker and you study poker and we do so differently, we're still effectively studying game theory, assuming that we're doing it along the mathematical spectrum. And that's the issue, man. It's just like health. It's just like fitness. When you learn what a deadlift is, when you learn learn what macro calorie is or uh, a macro, macronutrient versus a micronutrient, mm -hmm. when you learn what those things mean by definition, yeah. then you become the guy in the shop talking about rotary engines versus... Uh, V6 versus V8, whatever. The bro, the bro sign. Yeah, it's just like, okay, you know some terms, but you don't know shit, Yeah. right? And there are a lot of people fronting in this industry as being like theorists. Mm. And it's like, at the end of the day, no, you're not. I don't think all of us need to be theorists. Like, like I personally think like I'm much more interactive in the way like I explain like the exploitative flame frameworks in terms of how I've seen the game play when I'm in the game, yeah. right? And I think there's other players, like other people in our collective, Hunt and and Johan, that are just like viewing the game through, not viewing the game, but like are very good at explaining the other side that they is speak the math necessary. language very well. Right, exactly. Yeah. Where I speak like the gangster shit. Yeah, so you're more of an interpreter in that in that regard, and I think that's all that's all very good. Nah, I'm like a like like an implementer. Like there's the people that make the guns and the people that shoot the guns. You know. <laughs> sure. Um, and I, I think like, you know, Nick kind of spoke, spoke about this over the last few weeks in a way that like really hit home for me. <laughs> Nick, God. <laughs> uh, just, you know, I've always viewed this game as uh, a game of investment strategies. Yeah. The same as he kind of communicated. But when he broke that down a little bit further and basically just said, it's a game of investment strategies that's all fundamentally rooted in the pot odds model. Yeah, that yeah. kind of like set a light off. Yeah. Because we take for granted how simple simple the pot odds model is when it's actually a lot more complex than that. It's really kind of like the first thing to look at anytime a decision is being made. Mm. And to fundamentally demonstrate how poorly people understand this, just look at the rate at which overbets work. Mm -hmm. They just shouldn't, right? Because yes, you're being laid a worse price, but never to the degree that people are responding, right? Like yeah, we'll yeah. see overfolds. And granted, it's it's being conditioned out a little bit. People are becoming a lot less uh, or, or a lot more numb to the overbet and their understanding that certain hands have to call. At high stakes, but no, yeah, not right. The trickle down effect might yeah. not be real yet. So it's like when you're facing, and the other thing is that like people implementing also might not have the courage to be doing this light. Right. So right. like the correlation though is big bet, big hand, right? Where in reality it's big bet, pulled hand. Yeah. So it should be uh, equal between, not, not equal, but it should have right, a, a, a fair density of, of value versus bluff. And, uh, you know, when you have just a clear-cut equity hand, right? Mm -hmm. You have a nut flush draw on a non-paired board. Yeah. It's like you know exactly what you're drawing to. It's a stone nuts. You know that at worst, if you're behind and you're against a really good holding, at worst, you're like 38% equity. Yeah. So at worst, you need to be laid three to two. Yeah. So you can call like up to 2x pot. Yeah. I mean, there's a little bit of... There's some nuance there in the sense of how are you going to get... How yeah. are you going to get to realize on yeah, the yeah, turn? Yeah, yeah. But yeah, let's say it's a 2x pot shove. Yeah, exactly. That's a really good example, right? right? We see it happen a lot in tournaments. And people will just like not invest their chips in that scenario because it's like, oh, well, that's too big. It's, you know, I'm going to let them deny my equity this time because I'm just drawing yada, yada, yada. And the flush draw example is a really easy one because uh, it's clear cut to us. Mm. We have a lot of those scenarios that present themselves. Oh, for sure, right? for sure. So think of like, think of how, how much the stop and go should fail. Mm -hmm. The good players back in the day, whenever they opened and the big blind defended and then ripped for like pot and a half and they just had ace king on seven four deuce, just called. Yeah, for sure. They just called. They knew they had to call, right? Yeah. And the reality is if they're wrong, but they're live. Yeah, they're, they're drawing. Then, yeah, then they're, they're like, live. you know, they, they need to be getting three to one. They're actually getting laid three to two. Yeah. That's not necessarily a great price, but it's also the likelihood of them uh, also only being live, right? Because yeah, yeah, exactly. they're going to be winning at a pretty high frequency too. So now all of a sudden it's like this call becomes close to marginal, maybe even sometimes good. 
this is all born out of thinking about the game in hand versus hand, right? Where it's like, well, I have the nut flush draw, so he must have this hand in order to make a bet so strong. Mm -hmm. And I'm way behind that hand, so I'm just going to fold. Mm -hmm. The more we gravitate towards uh, hand versus range thinking and range versus range thinking, the more we'll begin to understand how closely equities run together. And I think that that's like one of the things that we demonstrate the best in, in the Cash Game Academy is just the idea of what range advantage and nut advantage are on textures and what the disparity between how the equities run will actually be there. And all yeah. this loops back to the pot odds model now because it's like that's a simple fundamental thing that everybody who plays this game should understand. But like the vast majority of the people in the game don't. They just instinctually go past that model wow. to just operate through the lens of black and white of like, is my hand good or is it bad? So one of the big reasons why I wanted to do the 100K challenge was just, you know, we've been talking a lot about discipline lately. And uh, for me, it's, it's, it's like, it's one thing to, to talk about it. It's another thing to be about it. Yeah. So it's like, I wanted to take something that is overall beneficial to myself, to the company, to uh, the community at large, maybe not the community at large, but the people who follow us. And I wanted to put it on display. Mm. So, uh, you know, I, I basically created the metrics for this 100K challenge. Uh, I have times that I'm going to play each day. I have strict bankroll management policies. If I lose 50K, I'm going to consider it a failure and, and yeah. uh, bail on it, whatever the case may be, yeah. right? Um, so really, it's, it's ultimately just a discipline challenge. And it got me thinking. It's like, I'm 37 now. I'm not doing the things that I want to be doing as far as like, fun activities and stuff like that. It's like, I'm fucking grinding the business every day. I'm grinding poker every day. I'm grinding study every day. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, I enjoy creating stuff, but it's like, you know, you can only do so many training videos. I, uh, I agree. And it's like, we need content for the vlog. It's like, I've been so boring for the last year. It's like, if I picked up a camera and, and tried vlogging the way we did two years ago, you get nothing. <laughs> just It's just a bunch of crickets That's for funny. like an entire five minute vlog package. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to create uh, a fitness and wellness challenge as well. Mm. I'm going to try to drag your ass into it. I see that. So here's the exchange. Ooh. I'm going to hire you as my 100K poker challenge coach. <laughs> I can't. Oh, so this is like this is like uh, where it all turns, huh? Yeah. This is like yeah. uh, when uh, it's like Miyagi turns to Daniel. Daniel, whatever. <laughs> Young Sung, holla, holla at me. And just says, like, it's on you now. I don't know if that ever happened. I don't know. I'm, I'm making that it scene up. seems made up. I could make it up. This is the Spanish version. No olvides respiración. Muy importante. Dar cera. Pulir cera. Spanish version with the translation of Spanish, right? Like, it was just like, his name was Yang Sung, not Daniel. Sure. Right, and it right, was right. like, it's on you now. Like, <laughs> uh, yeah, but no, I think it would be <clears throat> beneficial for both of us because, like, I don't want to do this 100K challenge. And I don't think you want to do anything on these two pieces of paper. So uh, the no. reality is <laughs> the 100K challenge will be very good for me. This will be very good for you. But it'll also be, uh, honestly, like it's going to be really good for me too because there are just like a lot of things that I want to get back into. It's like mm. 37, not dead. I'd like to start playing sports more frequently. I'd like to start being more active. Yeah, for sure. For uh, sure. It's like, you know, I don't know when it became a thing that like at 37, Hiking is supposed to be your, your form of enjoyment. Because Let me tell you something. Because man. women like hiking. Yo, hiking fucking sucks. I never liked hiking. There's no hills where I'm from. There are nothing but hills and woods where I'm from. I never hiked. You don't want to know why? It's stupid. <laughs> it's stupid. You're climbing You're a mountain. You're on a road to nowhere to see nothing. Nothing new anyway. To climb back down. All to just to climb back down. It's like, oh my God, I can see the strip from this mountaintop. Isn't this the greatest achievement? It's like, Why? I think swimming's nice. I I sink like a rock, man. Yeah, well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna teach you a little bit of like some moves, man. You dance? No. Salsa? No. If you dance salsa, you fuck good. <laughs> <laughs> That's the truth. I like this though. I like this stuff. I feel like when I'm challenged with something, I often do better than if like I don't not challenged with it. Like, I'll oh, just, I'm like, well aware of that. All right, man. You're your own worst enemy when it comes to this shit because like. But I could do this stuff. Like a lot of the stuff, like we've uh, we've be begun doing. Well, this. That's, so here, here's the whole point. So all this started uh, two two ways. First of all, the whole idea of this whole proposition was me kind of saying to you, like, do you think if we made a bet of which one of us could lose fifty percent of our body fat first, uh, you'd be a favorite? 
What I answer to that? I think I'm a favorite. You said yeah. You yeah. thought you were a huge favorite. I think I am. I, I don't think so. I would I would estimate that you're probably like 35% body fat right now. I have no idea. I, if I, I'll ballpark guess. Yeah. I would say you're probably like 35%. Mm-hmm. And I would say I'm probably like 18 to 20. Don't get me wrong. I may not even be capable of getting to 9 or 10%. I might be free rolling. But... <laughs> I also think it would be just as difficult for you to get from like 35 to 17. So I don't think I'm a favorite by any stretch, but it's I think hard, I, I think I'd be willing to kill myself trying <laughs> where like you'd be really happy at 20. I'll just pay. Right. You, really. at, at 20%, you'd just be like, bro, I'm close. I'll just pay. Where like, I, I'd be like 11 and a half. I'll fucking chop an arm off to get that. <laughs> That's funny. All right. So let me read some of this stuff up. Uh, fitness challenge, gym, five times a week. Gym, 20 times a month. Gym, 150 times during challenge. 60-minute cardio in a week. 60 minutes worth of cardio. Yeah. 300 minutes of high-intensity interval cardio in a month. 2,000 minutes of high-intensity high cardio during challenge. Someone might die here. No, it's, it's over 200 days. Jump rope, one minute consecutively. I don't even know how to jump rope yet. Perfect. Jump rope five minutes consecutively. Jump rope 15 minutes consecutively. Do a Turkish getup. Do a full Turkish getup with 50% of your body weight. I'm changing that one. That's too heavy. 10 pull-ups. Any grip. Three sets of 10 pull-ups. 100 pull-ups. I'm not even going to finish that. <laughs> body optimization challenge. Lose 10%. Wait. So, so before you get into this okay. one, uh, the, other, the other element that I wanted to say of like the way I constructed this yeah, where are, the, where are the steroids at? <laughs> no, nah, man, this is just good old-fashioned work. Mm. Um, like, if you go down the list, what you see is this, like, progression. Yeah, and yeah, the I idea is yeah. that, like, you'll be able to check a bunch of boxes along the way. And basically, the way I framed this, I kind of asked this to, to Nick last week, is, like, what, what's your impossible? Mm. So, like, what's the thing that you've compartmentalized as just being fundamentally impossible, despite the fact that you would like to achieve it? Yeah, seems good. And like for me, it's like sub 10% body fat. I just, I, I was sub 10% once in college. I don't know that I could attain it again. I was running like 50 miles a week at the time. I'm not willing to do that again. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, I, I'm willing to try and I'm willing to kind of shoot for the stars and see, see where I land. So it's this so another, idea. It's another that, one of those English things. <laughs> shoot for the stars. You'll land on the moon. Yeah. Like, yeah. The so hell? you know. You know how far another star is compared to the moon? <laughs> like, it's far, man. Like, that is, that is not a normal statement. Like, <laughs> that, like a star is far. It's the not moon, meant to be a literal statement. Man. Yeah, well, I'm just saying. Yeah, Danielson, go ahead. Um, so, yeah, basically, it's just like I wanted to create it in a way where, like, even if you fail at whatever the peak goal is, mm. you're going to nail so many goals along the way yeah. that it's going to feel, like, pretty good. And, like, ideally... I want us to be the guinea pigs because I think that there's something here. I think there's a chance for like uh, community involvement where we can create something that's maybe a little bit more broad spectrum, yeah. maybe more uh, inclusive where ultimately, and I kind of had this idea like two or three years ago, but I, I'm, I'm just resistant to it because I hate the idea of it. But like, you know, basically taking like six months and creating a community who wanted to get on board with like a, a scavenger hunt type challenge like this. This stuff is like done like like in terms of like even like people that fast and there's like apps. Yeah. Where yeah, like, yeah. oh, we're all fasting together. Right. You know? Right. Yeah. So I think like the community support in that regard is great. And then ultimately you just tr- strive for a bigger goal. Like say we all want to r- do a tough mutter together. Mm. Right. So like now you're training with a purpose. There's there's some sort of end in sight. And the idea is that like if you're willing to put in that much time, effort, uh, and you're able to achieve some of these goals along the way, some of them will just become routine. Some of them will be actually become discipline. And like you'll raise the floor along with the ceiling. Tune in next week when you figure out if I took the challenge or not. <laughs> I think this is a good idea. I, I, I think it's a good idea. Let's move on. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of responsibility, man. It's a lot of responsibility. Got to journal it every day. Tune in next time. And you'll see if we got this challenge. Challenge is happening, man. I'm on day two. My sauna game's strong. You're on day two and your sauna game's strong. Yeah. All right. Well, hope you all enjoyed all of this. We spoke a lot. It's a lot more than normal. I think you're just trying to keep up with Nick. 
I'm gonna tell Nick right now for a warning. Listen, Nick. If you ever touch my flag again, I will punch you dead in the mouth.